I'm going to be speaking on Elijah, and it's not particularly a Mothering Day subject, but it is relevant to all of us, and I believe God has got something for you. If you're here today, uh, particularly welcome. If you're a, a mother of someone you're just visiting, and I hope we've already prayed for you, I trust you had the courage to stand up. Um, but uh, actually, I believe God might want to speak to you out of this, because it's, I've called the title, The God of the Second Chance. Uh, and it's, it's coming from 1 Kings 21. I'd like you to find that if you've got a Bible, 1 Kings 21, because we're going to read quite a bit of the story, in fact the whole chapter, but not just as one uh, sort of slab of reading. I just want to, you to find it for a moment. And uh, I probably need to just introduce why we're looking at this subject of Elijah, or why we're on this chapter, Naboth's vineyard. As a church, uh, we've been looking at Elijah now, uh, for several months on and off from before Christmas I think or just around that time and I felt God laid Elijah on my heart because he was speaking to me out of Elijah and yet I feel there's also been a prophetic application for the church here and uh, for many individuals I felt that even the Elijah-Elisha thing and the handover was something God wanted to speak about with regard to myself and Steve Steve's also uh, preaching out of Elijah and Elisha alongside me and I, I feel that God's speaking something to us really about this with the handover it might be interesting for you to know because I didn't really know until I started reading the commentaries that probably there's a 10 year overlap between Mount Horeb uh, 1 Kings 19 when Elijah is commissioned for example to anoint Elisha and do a few other things there's 10 years until Elijah goes on to heaven in that chariot at the beginning of two kings. So there was a ten year period when they were working together, Elijah and Elisha, just by the way. But what we're looking at here today is still part of Elijah's story really and it's an incident called Naboth's Vineyard. You'll see that title to the chapter in your Bibles. Now I want just again to remind you of something. I know I do this often but I, I particularly feel visitors need to know this but actually we all need to remember this. The Bible is a record of real people and real events. It is not like Aesop's fables. It's not like a, a sort of made-up mythical story to make a, a little moral point. They're not like that. That's why sometimes they're a bit confusing. Sometimes you're not even sure what is the point. You have to see the whole thing in context of what's going on. But sometimes it, it's rather embarrassing or awkward or unpleasant because it's what real people did. They're real stories about real people in real history. But there's something else about the Bible. It's God's perspective of history. It's theological history. It's history from heaven's perspective. It is history, but it's how God sees it, or at least what God sees as is important. And that really is very obvious in this story of Ahab. If you were to look, and we're going up, it's going to go up on the screen, at 1 Kings 22, verse 39. If you could put that one up for me, please. If you looked at a chapter on, you'd see this. As for the other events of Ahab's reign, including all he did, the palace he built and inlaid with ivory, and the cities he fortified, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Just leave that up for a moment. Basically, the Bible acknowledges there's all sorts of things that Ahab did we haven't, I haven't even bothered to tell you about. And some of them were pretty remarkable. He built a gorgeous palace inlaid with ivory. A very spectacular building. He also built forts in all the key cities of, of Israel at that time to reinforce it and defend it. Now that's the sort of thing 
normally men and women would be interested in. You'd have a documentary on Ahab's life in which it was all looking at the forts and you'd have Peter Snow and his son running around them and describing them all, if you like, into history to some documentaries. Or maybe if you're into buildings, you'd be reading the Homes and Gardens magazine or Stately Homes magazine and say, wow, look at this palace inlaid with ivory. Isn't that remarkable? And it's almost as though the Bible with this one verse says, if you want to know about that, you can read it somewhere else. You want to know about it, go and look in the museum at Samaria and you'll hear all about his palace and his museums. Go and get the Home and Gardens magazine. That's not what God saw or valued. God sees it differently. Look at this passage from the chapter we're about to read. It'll go up. 1 Kings 21, verses 25 to 26. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Ammonites that the Lord drove out before Israel. God says, I have a very different view. I'm not impressed with ivory palaces. I'm not impressed with his fortresses. What I'm looking for is godliness, righteousness, integrity. I'm looking for something different and I didn't find it when I looked at Ahab. And it's true still. God's eyes roam throughout the earth and God often ignores what we regard as significant. Wow, look at that money. Look at those buildings. Look at that car. Look at this job. Look at that. God, God says, well, actually I'm not that bothered with that. I prize what men and women often consider very mundane. Faithfulness, integrity, love, godliness. People who hear my voice and obey it and listen to me. Those are the things I prize. And so that's the background for what we're about to read. Because actually, in context, this appears to be a trivial incident. It wasn't trivial to Naboth, I hasten to say, but in the context of its day, it was pretty trivial. Kings did get rid of people quite regularly. And in actual fact, in Israel and even in Ahab's reign, we read of people being murdered and just executed quite freely and quite often in quite large numbers. And so this actually is a relatively trivial incident. But God sees it in big terms. It's it's a whole chapter here in 1 Kings because it illustrated something profound about Ahab's heart and Jezebel's heart. It showed something about where they were really at. It helps you to understand what was going on in them and what was wrong with them. But also God used it to demonstrate something about himself particularly with regard to both Elijah and Ahab. And as we read the story, we will learn from those two particularly something for us about the God we deal with. It's a revelation about God that I want you to get this morning as we read this. Okay, so we're going to read the story. I'll give a little bit of uh, commentary as we go through it too, so it's not just a a blank story to you. Here's the event. Let's see, verse 1. Let's start there. Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home sullen and angry, because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. What a man. 
So, so let's stop there for a moment. That's Ahab. Now, even you might be thinking, well, do you know, would it have been so bad to sell his vineyard to Ahab? I mean, even we have compulsory purchase orders, don't we? The local council and the government do compulsory purchase orders. So what's the big deal? Even Naboth seems a little bit stroppy, a little bit, you know, back in Ahab's face. You need to understand something that both Naboth and Ahab would have fully understood. But you might not. If you were to read Leviticus 25, we're certainly not going to do it now, verses 23 to 38, if you were to read Numbers 36, verses 7 to 9, you would know that there was a whole background to this. The land belongs to God. All of the land belongs to God. Now, through a promise to Abraham, God has said, I will let you be stewards of the land. And that promise meant that God allocated to individual families and tribes certain sections of the promised land. Naboth's refusal to sell his land to Ahab was based on this godly biblical conviction that the land was the Lord's that he, the Lord, had granted a perpetual lease to each Israelite family and this lease was to be jealously preserved as the family's permanent inheritance in the promised land. There was spirituality behind this. There was religious faith. To sell the land so trivially for a vegetable garden, for example, just because the king wanted it, would have been an insult to God and it would have been a grave disservice to Naboth's descendants. This was a godless request. We won't spot that at first. This was not just only about a greedy man, although it's certainly about that. It was a denial of the Mosaic law. It was like as though Leviticus and Numbers don't exist. It was a totally different attitude to the land. I just want to extend my house and have a nice vegetable garden. Can I buy your land? I'm a rich man. And Naboth, now this is man God's given me. This is for me and my family. This isn't even my land to sell. This is God's land. I'm a steward of it. I've been leased it to care for it. What are you talking about? I'm not selling it to you for a vegetable garden. There's very detailed laws, actually, in Deuteronomy and Numbers. If people got very poor, they could sell it, but at the year of Jubilee, it had to come back to them. There's a huge, big spiritual truth behind this. You only sold it in extreme circumstances, and then you could expect its return in the purposes of God in the 50-year jubilee. So Ahab clearly cares nothing for the Mosaic law, nothing for what we call the Bible. Now his wife, Jezebel, cares even less, as we'll see. Now she's a Sidonian princess, she's not even an Israelite, and she's a zealous Baal worshipper. She doesn't worship God at all. We've seen that before. So let's pick the story up now in verse 5. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? (laughs) He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, Sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as a king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up, I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters to Ahab in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting and seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles 
who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she'd written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed, cursed both God and king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Well, so far, so bad. They've got that far. Sulky old Ahab gets his way at the expense of a good man's life. Now we find him wandering around this new possession, probably pleased with himself, probably trying to convince himself that he deserved it, and it wasn't his fault that Naboth had been killed. He'd done nothing. In fact, he didn't even realise his wife had used his name. Shame, really. Uh, But it had happened, and uh, there's no point crying over spilt milk, and it's all worked out quite well. I've got my vineyard, and uh, now we can think out what to do with it. And suddenly, in that context, he hears a voice he probably hasn't heard for five years. Commentators would tell us that it's probably four to five years between when we last met Elijah in 1 Kings 19 and here. And suddenly a familiar voice cuts through to him. Verse 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says, Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says, In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Ahab said to Elijah, So you found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, I am going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, Dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city. The birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the day of his son. The God of the second chance. We're going to concentrate for a few minutes on Elijah and a few minutes on Ahab. And I believe God wants to speak to us. Let's start with Elijah, firstly. I've told you most commentators agree that what happens here happens nearly five years after 1 Kings 19. Now, when I last preached on Elijah, that's where we were with Elijah. And I want to remind you what happened in that chapter. Elijah ran away 
in fear from Jezebel and Ahab. He was depressed and exhausted. He was a broken man. He asked God to take his life. He was very disappointed, deeply disappointed, that Israel hadn't really responded to the incredible experience of Mount Carmel, where God had proved the reality of his presence amongst his people. The fire fell. But actually, Jezebel and Ahab were remarkably unimpressed, and the nation stayed in the grip of paganism. Elijah was devastated. Eventually, God restores him enough to get some sense into him, really, because he's suicidal at one point. And and God leads him back to Mount Horeb, which is the mountain of God. And we saw that what that is for us is coming back to the cross. That when we're depressed, when we're broken, you must find your way back to the foundations. Horeb was where the law was given. Horeb was where God met his people, where the covenant was spoken. And our covenant is the one cut at Calvary. And whenever we hit difficulties and deep, deep trouble, we need to get back to the cross. We need to get back to Jesus. Get back to the fundamentals of what it's all about. And that's what he does. Five years have now gone by. Elijah was recommissioned at the end of that. Commissioned to anoint others to take on the task he'd started. I wonder what Elijah was doing in those five years. What we can see from 1 Kings 20, and this is interesting, I want you to know all the facts today. Because I'm going to apply them to you. What I want you to notice is that other prophets were doing things. If you read 1 Kings 20, which we obviously haven't time to do, you'll find other prophets are speaking into Ahab. So other people emerged in those years. I would suggest, though I haven't got the exact proof for it, but it's a pretty strong hint, I think, that probably Elijah spent a lot of time with Elisha and was discipling Elisha in that time. We don't really know. But I tell you one important thing, and I want you to hear this phrase because I want to bring it back to you. Elijah obviously kept himself close to God. He kept himself clean, filled and ready for service. So even though he wasn't, it seems, operating in his prophetic ministry much, he was clean, he was back close to God and he was ready to be used if God wanted him to use And then the time comes, which we've read about, when God speaks to him again and gives him an important commission to go to see Ahab. Now this is a big call for Elijah. Don't doubt that for one minute. Don't you remember, if you were here with us, this is the thing he fled from. He fled from Ahab and Jezebel. This time he doesn't run, he goes straight to Ahab. There's no hesitation, there's no fear, there seems to be no Uh, cowardice at all he goes straight up to meet Ahab now we need to be quite aware of how brave this was first of all Ahab is unchanged he's still Ahab in all his paganism and mixture and weakness secondly Jezebel is very much alive Jezebel is not off the scene whatsoever in fact she's just proved she is completely up to doing what she threatened to do killing Elijah she's just ruthlessly, cunningly, had a good godly man murdered. And by the way, his sons were murdered as well, which you'll pick up from two kings. She has just done that. She is still fully on form and doing what she normally does, viciously getting rid of God's people. And then actually, although I indicated that he might have been wandering around the vineyard, which he probably was, he wasn't alone. When Elijah met Ahab in the vineyard, Ahab was not on his own. 
he was accompanied by two of the toughest men in Israel, ruthless killing men, Jehu and Bidkar. And when you read, it's always good in the Bible to read a bit of other scripture and get a sense of it. When you read in 2 Kings, which I've asked them to put up on the screen, I find this a fascinating little insight. This is later when Ahab's dead and actually Ahab's son is killed by Jehu. But let's, let's look at this. Joram is Ahab's son. Joram turned about and fled, calling out to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah! Then Jehu drew his bow and shot Joram between the shoulders. The arrow pierced his heart and he slumped down in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his chariot officer, Pick him up and throw him on the field that belonged to Naboth the Jezreelite. Remember how you and I were riding together in chariots behind Ahab his father when the Lord made this prophecy about him. Yesterday I saw the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, and I will surely make you pay for it on this plot of ground, declares the Lord. Now then, pick him up and throw him on the plot in accordance with the word of the Lord. These two really vicious characters were alongside Ahab. I mean, Elijah has, is courageous. I nearly said something rude there. Elijah is courageous. I'll let you guess what it was. He has got courage. I mean, this guy ran from Jezebel. Okay? He, he knew what these people are like. Jezebel has just killed a good guy. And these two men who will never take prisoners, they don't take prisoners. Jehu and Bidkar are the sort of people you wouldn't want to meet anywhere. And he's, they're alongside Ahab. And Elijah comes straight up and says, you murderer. I mean, that's courage. God says, you've killed a man and taken his land. Whew. I think he's back on form. What a man. Elijah is back on form. And uh, he goes for it. Now, something had happened to him, hadn't he? Elijah didn't lose it forever, brothers and sisters. We saw the guy broken. We saw him depressed. We saw him running away from Jezebel. Please kill me. Take my life. There's nobody else left. And I'm the last one. You might as well wipe me out. And, you know, you know, he's right down the tube. But somehow he's re-encountered God, which we saw actually, beginning of that happening. And he's back with the Lord. He's got his poise back. He's got his faith back. He's centred on God. And he's courageous. Those years weren't wasted. He'd, he'd restored his walk with God. He got back his faith, his courage. And he's able to go, as I say, with poise and clarity, straight up to Ahab. Hallelujah. God is the God of the second chance and the third and the fourth chance. Isn't that good? Maybe you've all never made a mistake. I think that's good. That God doesn't just wipe you out because you make a mistake. Because you get depressed. Because you ask for God to kill you. Because you maybe even try to take your life. That doesn't mean you're wiped out. Do you see that? God is a God of the second chance and beyond. What about some of you? Some of you in this room were prominent in Christian service once, in church. Perhaps you're nothing now, you feel. You don't do anything. Quite a number of you, I know, have been leaders of churches. I know there's ex-leaders amongst us. I know that. And you can feel very cast aside. Elijah could have felt, and perhaps did feel in his own way, cast aside. He wasn't the one prophesying for, for most of those years. It seems that somebody else was in doing the job with Ahab. But you could be like that. Maybe for a moment we need to analyse it. You need to analyse. Analyse yourself. What, what, why is it? What happened? Let me suggest these are the sort of things that can happen. Sometimes it simply seems to be the sovereignty of God. You feel, what happened to me? Why am I not doing that anymore? 
Why am I not the prophet anymore? Why am I not the leader I was anymore? Sometimes it seems just to be circumstances conspired against you. It just seems that God let things happen that ended up with you not where you were. To some extent, that's how it was with Elijah. It wasn't all. He did everything right. He got in there, the fire fell, and then, well, sort of, it didn't change. Jezebel and Ahab just said, you, uh, I'm going to get you. And it was just, oh, what's going on? And, and it was, so, so sometimes it feels like God just didn't complete the job. But you need to learn right now and remind yourself, God is in charge of your life. God's sovereign. And he has a right to do what he wants to do with you. And you're a servant. And you want to still be a servant, as Elijah was prepared to be. When God says, do it, do it. Okay, you're not doing what you once were. Well, be at peace. Accept to some extent the sovereign will of God is involved. But let's think of other things. Maybe it's not quite as simple as that. Maybe there was some sin in you, some inconsistency. I think that was true of Elijah. There was an inconsistency. He was at least inconsistent. One minute he's bold as a lion, the next minute he's running scared into the wilderness. He's human. Thank God. God shows us. He knows what it is to be human. But, but it is a failure. Have you faced up to that? Elijah must have faced up to it. Have you dealt with it? Have you confessed it? That you did blow it? That you did miss something? You did get it wrong? It's not hopeless, but you need to face it. You need to go through that and do, do business with God and be prepared to change. Maybe, thirdly, and I think they're all tied together often, there's some deeper teaching God wants to give you. I don't mean intellectual teaching. Teach a deeper truth. Maybe there's something you had to learn. Maybe Ahab had to learn... I'm sorry, Elijah had to learn something. I'm not sure if it was this, but at the end of 1 Kings 19... He is told he's going to commission three other people to complete the job. Perhaps he just needed to learn, it's not all about you, Elijah. There's going to be Elisha, there's going to be, there was that king, his name I can't remember, there was Jehu actually. And, 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 it, and, and it, maybe it's just to learn, team, <laughs> or to learn, we need others. To learn, others are going to be involved. It's a humbling thing. Are you teachable? Are you delighted to see the job done, even if you don't do it? Was Elijah delighted that somebody was in there speaking God's word to Ahab in what we would call 1 Kings 20? I think he probably was. Was he delighted that Elisha had been, annoyed, had been set aside and had followed the call and was going to take it on beyond where he'd taken it and actually was going to do twice as much as Elijah? Was he able to handle that with grace? I think he was. Otherwise, God couldn't have used him in the way that he did. And I think we have to do business with God. It's no good getting bitter and lonely and isolated and backslidden. That does nobody any good. And it's not essential. You don't have to do that. You need to do business with God. Lord, I trust you. You are sovereign. Lord, I'm sorry where I blew it and re responded badly. And Lord, I want to learn what you're teaching me about perhaps my own vulnerabilities in areas or my own need for others or whatever it is that God's teaching you. And are you doing what Elijah must have done? I used this phrase earlier. Kept himself clean, filled and ready for service. Are you keeping yourself clean? Keeping a good walk with God? Keeping yourself filled with the Spirit? And keeping yourself ready for service?
Because that is what Elijah must have done. You know, there's an old, I think it's an old poetry line, probably Victorian, but it's got wisdom in it. Those, they also serve who only stand and wait. They also serve who only stand and wait. That is true with God. Our sovereign God doesn't need any of us to do anything. He chooses to use us. And actually God responds to our willingness rather than to our action. It's the willingness to do the deed that is as important as doing it in God. So you really do serve who stand and wait with God. That is an absolute truth. That's not just a nice word to pat you on the head so you feel good. That is true. You see, God can do everything he wants to do without me. I mean, you know, he chooses to use me, he wants to use me, and actually God says, well, I want your heart, John. I want you willing to serve me. And I've got that, I'm delighted. That counts great for me. That counts for the equivalent to doing the deed. So we need to be ready to serve. Clean, filled, and ready for service. And like Elijah, it may take a while. It may have been five years. And the word came to Elijah again, I want you to get up, to go down, to meet, to say. I want you to get on your donkey or whatever he did, or walked, I suspect. I want you to get down to Ahab and I want you to speak my word straight to him. So, Ahab, so Elijah was ready to go and see Ahab, filled with the spirit and ready. But he still had to face his fears, didn't he? And that was a tough call. And if he hadn't been walking with God, he wouldn't have been able to do it because it was right back where he'd run away. God often does that with us. He brings us back to the very thing that we couldn't face once. That's how God helps us sometimes. You need to be ready for that as well. Ahab hasn't changed a bit. His greeting to Elijah is, So you have found me, my enemy. That's encouraging, isn't it? The king with Jehu and Bidgar alongside him, snarling, frowning, holding their sword hilts. So you have found me, my enemy. Hmm. But Elijah doesn't waver and he speaks boldly the word of God. Hallelujah. I want some of you this morning who have been in that position and feel echoes this, just be stirred to keep yourself ready, but also to, to not allow yourself to slip back into despondency and, and isolation. God is the God of the second chance. Now in the last few minutes, and it will overrun by five minutes, I anticipate, I'd like to talk a little bit about Ahab. Ahab calls Elijah his enemy, which is actually how he feels about Elijah, but is a very, very wrong assessment. If Ahab could but see it, Elijah is his best friend and his enemy is his wife, Jezebel. Jezebel's evil, murderous plots and idolatrous schemes are driving Ahab closer and closer to total destruction at the hands of the living God. Jezebel is driving him into judgment and death. But actually Elijah is confronting Ahab with God's truth and is giving him an opportunity to repent and turn back from destruction. Do you know people today, and maybe some in this room, often get very angry with the Bible, very angry with Christians, because we talk about sin, we talk about judgment, we talk about repentance and forgiveness. And say, oh, don't put guilt on me. What do you mean repentance and forgiveness and sin? Well, we're telling you something to bring hope and change. Jesus himself 
said that these sort of themes would be the key message of the gospel. Let's quickly look. Luke 24. It'll go up on the screen. Luke 24. This is Jesus commissioning his disciples from Luke. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead and on the third day, on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The key message that Jesus had, having died and risen, was that there is, the good news is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's the good news. That's the good news we've got for every nation. It has to start by seeing that you need forgiveness. You are a sinner. We are all sinners. We all fail in areas. We fail in our own standards, let alone God's. Most problems in the world can be traced back to sin in the human heart. Sure, it gets very complicated and there are natural disasters, but even the natural disasters are often made worse by human sin, by badly built houses, poor people left on floodplains, people not fed properly, not looked after properly, hugely exacerbated. You only want to compare an earthquake in Japan to one in Haiti. And all right, you can say it's an earthquake, but you look at the difference in the death toll, it would be phenomenal. It has been in recent years. Because human sin taints everything. Even our good deeds are tainted. And there's lots of good stuff. People are, do some amazing things. There's heroic things, there's courageous things, there's loving, uh, sacrificial things, all sorts. But there's also always something mixed in the mix of a human character. Greed, pride, selfishness, lust, hatred, it all gets in there. Glorious art, then you hear about the person's personal life and it's horrible. And you suddenly realise it all gets tainted because we've all missed it. We all fall short of the glory of God. We are sinners. We need forgiving. We need saving. If people could but see it, the gospel, which appears to be saying you're a sinner, is actually, and it is saying, is actually the best news in the world, isn't it? It is, because it's saying, here's the problem, but here's the answer. Jesus has died for your sin. He's risen again. He's the bridge across this chasm that separates you from God. The chasm of your sin and failure is bridged only from heaven's side. The bridge of Jesus comes across and he has died for you. He has risen again. If you put faith in him, you can run into the arms of a loving heavenly father over the bridge of Jesus. That is good news, but you've got to realise there's a chasm. You've got to realise there's a problem, which there is. And then you can embrace the answer. No, no. The gospel isn't your problem. God's not your problem. The Bible's not your problem. I'll tell you what's your problem, your enemy. It's the Jezebel. It's the modern equivalent to Jezebel. The spirit of our age that says this. You're a king. You can have what you want. You can do what you like. There's no morality. There's no rules. You can indulge yourself. Hey, chill out. Do what you want. You're a king. Every one of you is a king to choose to do exactly what you like. It's a lie. There are huge consequences. The broad road leads to destruction. It's destructive and dangerous to say there's no morality. You can do what you like. There's no right and wrong. It's just up to the individual, just what you fancy. Occasionally we put a few boundaries in if you actually murder people, but even then we try and help you through and let you out and pat you on the head and give you some pills to make you better. No, there is sin. And it stinks. And it's in our hearts and there's an answer in Jesus Christ. 
And actually, the Jezebel is the one who says there aren't any consequences. Do what you like. You can break the rules. You can be a king. Take it if you want it. It's yours. That's the deception. That's the deception. The truth is there is a living God who sees you, who is going to judge your sin, but who actually loves you and wants you to turn. Now the incredible, and I'm going to get to this bit. You'll have to ask the children to be five minutes late. The incredible thing is this, and I am staggered as I read it myself this week. God gives Ahab another chance. Isn't that ridiculous? I mean, I used to think, I have preached for years that grace is offensive. And when I read this this week, I was offended. I mean it. I thought, God, what are you doing? You should kill the man. He does a horrible thing to Naboth. How can you be merciful to Ahab? I felt like that when I read it. And that reminds me, and I'm reminding you big time, grace is offensive. Because it is something for nothing for those who don't deserve anything. Isn't it? You, you, you don't always believe it, do you? Because we're all polite and pleasant. You think, well, actually, I was quite nice, and God's been good to me. No, you weren't. You, but for the grace of God, you'd go to hell. But for the grace of God, you have no hope whatsoever, any of you. Any of you. I don't care what university you went to, what school, how well you were brought up, but for the grace of God, you have no hope. And you look at Ahab, you think, what is God doing with Ahab? He's showing mercy. God is almost childish, I feel. Look at the last verse. I don't know if I lost my... Uh, stuffy stuff on the thingy. Uh, it's, it's up there, yeah. 1 Kings 21. It's, it's going to go up. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I think, God, you're naive. You're naive. He's a villain. Oh, have you look? He's humble. What's the matter with you, God? Aren't you streetwise? But it's just God loves humility. He can't help it. There was obviously a partial sincerity in Ahab. That's all we can assume. It seems to be sincere. It says in verse uh, 27, he went around meekly. Now that word isn't ironic, it's not sarcastic. He went around meekly. He did humble himself. And even when Ahab humbles himself, God has mercy on him. What sort of God's that? That's the God you deal with. It's all through the Bible. God is rich in mercy. He is a God of grace. You're always on a winner if you appeal to his mercy. Your problem is your pride. Get humble and God will exalt you. God loves to humble, to exalt the humble. But he's against the proud. That's our problem. Say, oh God have mercy on me and even a vile man like Ahab gets a slice of mercy. Now historically what probably happened is that he did stay contrite for a little while, maybe a year or two. And he went back to his old ways and he came to a sticky end. But when he showed mercy, uh, sorry, humility, God showed mercy to him. I think that is incredible. It's not fair and it's offensive, isn't it? Well, perhaps you're just, I thought, well, I thought that's jolly unfair. And, and God said, yes, John, it is. That's what grace is like. I felt I had a new poke from God this week when I was preparing felt God got in my face on it. I honestly did. I said, why are you offended? That's what my grace is always offensive. It tells me something about your heart, John. You're a bit proud. 
You don't, if the person, you know, certain people you like seeing receive mercy. You didn't like seeing Ahab receive mercy, did you? I said, no, I didn't, Lord. And, and you know, I think, I think it's God. I'm amazed at our lovely God. I'm amazed at him. Let's look at the last scripture. This is a strange one, isn't it? Revelation. This is Jesus. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. What a God. God says, I'm still waiting and knocking. Now, it could be you're a little bit like an Elijah. You're a Christian who's lost your ministry or got into a a, a sort of sideline or siding and you got all angry and bitter. Jesus is saying, come on, I want to come back in and have have food with you. I want you to re-engage with me. I want to have fellowship with you. Or it could be that you've never known the Lord and you've never realised God is waiting for you to open the door of your life. It's incredible. You think, what a God he is. He says, come on, be earnest and repent. Be earnest, turn to me, be serious and I will come in and I will eat with you. God is a God of mercy and grace. The door has to be opened. He is polite in a strange sort of way. He waits, just as he does with Ahab. If Ahab shows a turn, God will respond. It's like the prodigal son. The father is waiting for the son. And as soon as he sees the son, he runs to meet him. That's how God is. That's a picture of God. Isn't that amazing? Do you believe that's God? Isn't that amazing? And I want you to enjoy him and to know him. 